This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. Speaking today with the historian David S. Brown about his new book, The Last American Aristocrat, The Brilliant Life and Improbable Education of Henry Adams. It's a marvelous book, David, and in a well-ordered society, one that would be required reading for every member of Congress, for the entire chorus of the mainstream media, for every operatic soloist in the theaters of cable news. Born 1838, died 1918. Adams is among the finest writers and thinkers ever to spring from American soil. And what he has to say about his 19th century life and times cuts to the quick of our own 21st century life and times. We learn more from two hours in the company of Adams than we do in a year's subscription to the New Yorker and the Washington Post. Your book, David, divides into two parts, the story of the life, becoming Henry Adams, and the shaping of the thought performing Henry Adams. Begin with a life. From whence cometh the man behind the many masks? So the life of Henry Adams. This obviously takes us deep into American history because Henry Adams is a member of that famous Adams family. What drew me into Henry Adams, however, wasn't the politics of the family. It was it was his own perceptions, his own writings, his own notion of what America was, what it was becoming, and where it might go. Um, the family life. So this is the, the great-grandson of John Adams, the grandson of John Quincy Adams. Um, this is someone who was steeped in American history and traditions, and in a more focused sense, on New England history and traditions. Partly patrician, partly Puritan, uh, someone who was coming of age in the 19th century in a country that had gone through the crisis of civil war and was now, in another sense, going through another crisis, that of the industrial process. Uh, to my mind, Adams is one of the great thinkers, one of the great articulators of the promise and the perils of this industrial state and nation that America was becoming in the late 19th century. Finance, capitalism, immigration, and all of that. His books, his histories, his poems, and his novels speak deeply to this process. And they tell us so much about what America was, what it thought it was, and, and where it was going. You mentioned that Henry Adams was born in 1838, and he died in, in 1918. So this is someone who really watched what was happening around him. He was born the year of the Trail of Tears. By the time that he dies, the Ford Motor Company is going to be producing hundreds of thousands of automobiles per year. So this is someone who is more than just an observer. He is a participant in the historical process that he comments on. And he, he, he knows everybody, and he travels everywhere, and he does everything. Give us a rundown, sort of a brief summary of all of the people that he met. Sure. So this is an individual who, when he was a child, he was ushered into the presidential office to, to meet Zachary Taylor. This is someone who attended uh, an inaugural ball for Abraham Lincoln 
and watched Abraham Lincoln as he wrote nervously play around with his kid gloves on the eve of secession and civil war. And this is someone who spent several years in London uh, as a secretary for his father, who was the American ambassador to the court of St. James's, and who there met all kinds of aristocrats and royalty, including Queen Victoria. This is someone who was familiar with the American robber barons. This is someone who was familiar with the cream of the American uh, artistic society. Uh, the novelist Henry James was a good friend. The novelist Edith Wharton was a good friend. The sculpture artist Augustus St. Gaudens, for a commission, crafted for Henry Adams the, the marker, uh, the tombstone, if you will, very elaborate, of a statue to be set forth upon the grave of his wife. Adams was friends with these individuals. Adams was very um, you know, close, I think, in some uh, intellectual and artistic ways, these individuals. And his ability to of their ideas, to reflect upon the meaning of their writings and their arts, and to incorporate that into his analysis, what was happening in America was, was really a special thing. Um, very difficult to do. He also, of course, he had dinner with Theodore Roosevelt. And later in his life, he was living in a house across the Lafayette Square from the from the White House. That's and right. He, he, he met the young Franklin Roosevelt and Eleanor Roosevelt. He even met the young F. Scott Fitzgerald. We have these pungent observations from Henry Adams because uh, he wrote so much. Uh, his letters are so full. And so, yes, a, a young Franklin Roosevelt, a young Eleanor Roosevelt, uh, Henry was, uh, was friends with these people. Um, they represented a, a new form of, of Washington politics. And, of course, to them, he was a, a dear old lion, uh, someone who, who knew the town, the city of Washington, like no one else. Um, this is someone who had been friends, sometimes contrasting, sometimes crossing friends with Theodore Roosevelt had numerous conversations, um, uh, luncheons, suppers, etc., with, with that form of the Republican Roosevelt family. This is someone who, as you note, um, had a brief interlude with, with F. Scott Fitzgerald, who, as a teenager, was brought to meet Henry Adams. And, in fact, F. Scott Fitzgerald would drop Henry Adams into his Fitzgerald's first novel, This Side of Paradise, completed in 1920 when Fitzgerald was only 23 years old, and Fitzgerald refers to Henry Adams as a member of a distinguished, illustrious family who had aspirations to be a diplomat. All that is true. Fitzgerald was able, in a very precise way, just a sentence or two, to distill part of the essence of this man who he met when he was only a teenager. Henry Adams seemed to come into contact with just about every important intellectual figure of the second half of the 20th, in the first decade or two of the, of the 20th century. Now describe, you, you do it brilliantly in your book, but describe his appearance. Henry Adams's appearance, he was a, um, an intellectual-looking gentleman. He had a, uh, a bald head. Um, as he wrote to a brother when he was in his early 30s, I'm growing bald, very bald. He had that uh, wonderful period piece, Van Dyke beard, um, pointed, looking sharp. Uh, the sartorial taste, um, dark suits preferred in wintertime, um, maybe light colored suits in summertime. Um, this is someone who, who knew how to dress, who would go to the finest clothiers in New York and in London. 
um, Brooks Brothers, when Brooks Brothers was maybe a couple of very elite shops, handcrafted shoes. Henry Adams was a bit of an aristocrat, and he understood that about himself. True, the Adams family, these you know vaunted Republicans, and Henry was a, a patriot. He was a Republican too, but he very much was self-conscious of his appearance. I think in part because he was a little bit self-conscious about his height. Uh, he wasn't terribly a tall man. Had suffered through some childhood ailments, which he thought had limited his uh, ability to to grow, to gain weight, and uh, I think he made up for that in his immaculate, aristocratic appearance and his, his 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 walking habit of taking very large strides. I think as much as anything to embellish the sense of proportion when he was approaching someone. He wanted them to understand that Henry Adams was someone to be taken seriously. He was also. Uh, he has aristocratic tastes. I mean, when he's living in Washington, he, he goes riding every morning. Mm-hmm. I mean, with his wife Clover. But he he also collects paintings on his frequent travels to Europe, in both in France. He has an apartment in Paris and a library in Paris, as well as a house and an apartment and a library in Washington. He has a taste for champagne. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's a man of, of, of means. He never has to work for a living. He's, he's a, uh, he has a substantial income throughout his life. Mm-hmm. At one point in his life, we can get to that later, but, but he knows about money. With his brothers, there's a family trust, and, and they know how to play the market and, and they invest wisely. But he's, he's, uh, he's always an impressive, even though small, figure because of his bearing and his obvious intelligence. He's also, you say, a magnificent uh, conversationalist. He could talk about just about anything. Uh, he was so widely read, in some respects, so forbiddingly read. Um, his youngest brother, Brooks Adams, who was also an intellectual, wrote to Henry late in their, in their, in their, in their lives. And he said, you know, Henry, you can, you can read twice as much as I can. You can remember twice as much as I can. You can write twice as much as I can. And at times it seemed, it seemed to be true. His letters are marvelous for deciphering his, his, his background and his interests and his intellectual training. So often uh, he can refer to, to Shakespeare to the Bible. Just these are references that he had at the tip of his fingers. So this is someone who you could go to an evening in London, in Paris, in, in Washington. Um, you could be introduced to Henry Adams, and if he found you interesting, you might be there for an hour. And you might walk away thinking that this is the most charismatic, intellectually charismatic individual I, I've ever come into contact with. Um, a, a good friend of, of Theodore Roosevelt, Owen Wister, uh, uh, probably best known for uh, you know, his, 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 his fiction, uh, The Virginian. He wrote of Henry Adams that um, you know, young people were just enthralled by him because he seemed to know so much about the culture, about the history. And so aside from having that magic name, the Adams name, he backed it up with real work, with real training, and with real writing, and with real intellectual curiosity that never seemed to dim with age. He, he seemed to be able to read and engage in conversations at a very high level, almost always initiated by himself. 
And, uh, and people were just amazed by this, how much he knew, how clear he was, and how pungent his remarks could be. He teaches briefly at Harvard in the 1870s, teaches medieval history at the same time that he is the editor of the North American Review, the most influential magazine of its time being published in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And his students say the same things about him that that you just said. Sure. As a teacher, I mean, as a constantly rewarding inspiration in conversation with, with his students. Yes, he never, he never really talked down to his students. And on the surface, we might be surprised by that because this is Henry Adams. This is this great man. But that was part of the charisma of the individual. He could walk into a classroom and he would pace up and down, up and down. And he would just sort of, almost as if he was in a conversation with himself, he would toss out ideas and, and he'd let students make comments on these ideas. And he would, he would, he would be purposely um, provocative in the statements, not, not simply lecturing from a piece of paper, but trying to engage young people in conversations. And that was in a lecture class. Uh, he also led graduate seminars. And in the graduate seminars, he might have five or six students come over to his enclosure's house, Marlborough Street in Boston. There'd be a fire. There'd be some nourishment, uh, maybe uh, you know, some, some, some beverages. And then there'd be conversation for a couple of hours. And uh, you know, for, for anyone who's been fortunate enough to be in that kind of a situation, invited over to her doctor professor's house for an evening, this can be wonderfully instructive, not just in a pedagogical sense, but in acclimating us or, or, or getting us used to the business of being taken seriously as young people and, and having something to say. Adams is willing to critique his own family in, in, in some of these lectures, open the door for some of his other Harvard students, by their own august families, to be able to, to critique their own backgrounds also. Talk very now briefly about the years, let's say, 1840 to 1870. I mean, from the time of Henry's birth up until the time he comes back to Harvard to teach. I mean, his, his service in London, his time in Washington, his travel to Italy, his travel to Germany, and, and his writing newspaper articles from London and what he was doing in London in the Civil War. See if you can do that in a, in a few minutes and then we'll get to we'll, we'll, we'll get to the shape of his mm-hmm. thought and talk about his writings. Mm-hmm. Henry graduates from Harvard in 1858 and he's not quite sure what he wants to do like a lot of young people but he knows what he doesn't want to do. He doesn't want to be just another Boston lawyer. And so he gets that most precious thing. He gets some time. He gets a couple of years where he can go to Europe, make his own kind of grand tour, and begin to reflect upon what he really wants to do. He thinks he might want to be a diplomat. He thinks he might want to be an intellectual. He thinks he might want to be a writer. He comes back to America. The Civil War is just starting. His father has made the ambassador to the Court of St. James's in London a very important position because the U.S. very much wants England, uh, Great Britain, to be neutral in this conflict, not take the side of the Confederacy. Henry goes with his father. And so for eight years, Henry is in London doing some traveling as well. And, um, and uh, he is absorbing ideas. 
He is absorbing the social culture of this great metropolis, and he is making connections that are going to last him for a lifetime. So these are very important years for Henry Adams. Um, he's not uh, he's not going to be a, a small town lawyer or a big town lawyer. Uh, he's not going to be uh, quote unquote just a school teacher, although he'll take his turn at that. But he is going to be a man of of, of means, a man of, of of public interest, and he is going to be uh, a public intellectual. And so it's these years in London, which I think, looking at some of the London elites, the young men uh, of his own age and his own generation who were beginning to carve out such careers, gave him the notion that such a such a, a thing could be accomplished in America as well. And then when he comes back, he realizes that that, that, that really isn't going to happen in Boston. Boston's too small, so he is going to go to he's going to go to Washington D.C. and there he's going to try to build for himself a career as a public intellectual. Because he also finds that in Washington there's more sophisticated company because more international than there is in, say, Boston. He always thought of Boston as being too incestuous, too many Adamses. Okay. All right. So he's done the thing. Take us up now to when he gets married to Clover. He, he, he's, he marries her while he's teaching it at, at Harvard in the 1870s. Mm-hmm. But then he leaves Boston in 1877 and moves to Washington with Clover, becomes part of Washington society mm-hmm. and and begins to, to start to write. So talk about Clover, talk about their house in Washington, which is was on Lafayette Square overlooking the White House, mm-hmm. and, and then talk about his beginning to take up a career as a writer and talk about his novel, Democracy. In 1872, Henry does something that no one in his family thought he was ever going to do. He got married. This is, this is a, a marriage that would last for 13 years to Marion Hooper, Clover Adams. And Clover came from a distinguished Boston family on her mother's side, Sturgis. If, um, uh, if you want to get a sense of, of the artistic side of the family, you can turn to Henry David Thoreau's Walden, because Thoreau quoted in that book passage from a poem written by Clover's mother. This was, this was the relationship in the marriage. It was um, fraught with some peril because of the mental health um, concerns that Henry's people had for Clover's family. Clover had a, an aunt, uh, who was pregnant, and, and she killed herself. And so there was great concern on the part of, of, of his people. Henry kept the marriage, or at least the engagement, a secret till very late in the day, when they were just about ready to get married. They, they get married. He works in, in, at Harvard. But in 1877, they uproot, and they go to, they go to Washington, where they establish this, this very famous salon, the Five of Hearts. Henry, Clover, John Hay... John Hay's wife, and Clarence King. Hay, of course, was the former secretary of Abraham Lincoln, who had become, soon enough, America's secretary of state under McKinley and Theodore Roosevelt. King was famous for his exploits mountaineering in the Sierra Nevada, a man of action, but also a man who had a tremendous art collection, the kind of man that Henry looked up to, and in some sense, I think, kind of, kind of wanted to be. Henry sometimes thought he was a little bit too cerebral. So, Henry and Clover are living in this house on Lafayette Square. The Hayes have put up 
a complement house, a bit bigger. They had more money. And, and, and on Lafayette Square as well. This is where the, the Hay Adams Hotel currently is. The Adams House and the Hay House, unfortunately, they were knocked down when I developed 1820 and the hotel went up. But it's here, overlooking the White House, that Henry and Clover lived, that the Five of Hearts had their celebrated salon. Henry, it's almost as though he was saying, if I can't be the president as my grandfather, great-grandfather were presidents, maybe I can be an advisor. Maybe, maybe I could be here in sight, in line, for whoever needs me, preferably a secretary of state, preferably a president. It's there in that house at that time that Henry writes his novel, Democracy. Democracy is a 19th century novel that I think is fresh to this day. It is witty. It is acerbic. Um, it's not damaging. It's not demeaning. But it really takes the pulse of democracy in the Gilded Age and looks at that type of corruption culture and, and calls it what it is. So the profiles are sharp, they're nuanced. He doesn't name names, but you could read between the lines and you could see, for example, that James G. Blaine, who was a presidential candidate for the Republican Party, he is, he is in the novel. You could also see bits and pieces of Henry Adams in the novel, interestingly enough, in a female character who, who wants better government, good government, who wants to go back to the days when the republic was really strong, when it was ethical and moral. But, but, but Henry knows that those days have passed, and so he puts his regrets into the regrets of, of this character. Uh, this is a novel that um, was exceedingly popular, probably the most popular book Henry Adams ever wrote. It was popular on both sides of the Atlantic. It was translated into French, and we know that the prime minister uh, of England was a big fan of it. But we can also see in the novel the present-day swamp, what we call the swamp in Washington. It's the same kind of a world. That's very much what Henry Adams was going for, the idea that, that because politics and partisanship had become such a big part of America, what was left out of this was the idea that self-interested American citizens could come to Washington and, and just get the job done in two years and five years, and then, and then return to, to their homes, to their families. But what had, had happened was that um, politics had become institutionalized, and parties had become institutionalized. And Henry was no fan of political parties. He also sees, you know, the whole civilizational sweep in America. I mean, from the early days of, of an agrarian republic, he writes a nine-volume history of the Jefferson and Madison administration and understands that world, and he sees that world change over the period of the 19th century into the world of the uh, financial scoundrels and the political spoilsmen and the Gilded Age robber barons of a society that is uh, worships money and machines in, in the, uh, we are that kind of society today, and we were that kind of society in the last quarter of the 19th century, very closely observed by the, the um, perceptive Mr. Adams. I suppose that there's something about democracy, both the book and the concept itself, that lends itself to this notion of, of instability and 
partisanship. And I think you're right. I think what Adams taps into is a prominent feature in our country's politics, uh, embedded in the system, rooted in the republic, something that, that perhaps uh, is, is too difficult to, to, to move away from, unless one goes to, as someone, someone who loves the republic, um, wants us to be aware of its shortcomings. And, and one would like to say actually had a lot of hope that we were going to overcome our frailties, maybe a bit of our human nature, and create a better republic. Uh, you know, one, one might say that the lesson of his grandfather, and Henry knew his grandfather, John Quincy Adams, uh, who, who was alive until Henry was 10, he knew that um, the people did not make his grandfather the president of this country. His grandfather did not win the popular vote. His grandfather did not win the electoral vote. It was a contingent election in the House of Representatives that made his grandfather president in 1829 over Andrew Jackson. Democracy had never been a great, great um, friend of the Adams family. Talk, the, the, the novel Democracy is published in 1880. Henry Adams is living in Washington and with the five hearts overlooking uh, Lafayette Square. But his wife, Clover, in 1885 commits suicide. And after that, his life changes. So talk briefly about her suicide and then Henry Adams taking up what he himself called his posthumous life. In 1885, in the spring of that year, Clover's father died. And Clover was very close to her father. And this seemed to put her in a uh, terminal condition from which she could not pull herself out of. Uh, in December of that year, she would take her own life. She was a, a gifted photographer, and she consumed developing fluid. Uh, we know that Clover's sister would take her own life. We know that Clover's brother attempted to take his own life as well. So there was, a, there was a difficult inheritance there. Henry could have done a lot of things. Henry was a man of means. He was determined to pull himself out of this, to, um, to, to in some respects, not ever forget Clover. He was never going to remarry. But in other respects, to, to move forward. Because as he wrote to his friend John Hay, it's the only thing I could do. What else could he do except for expire himself? So he determines to build a new life for himself. In this book, in this biography I wrote, I refer to this as the posthumous life because that's what Henry that's how Henry referred to it. By posthumous life, he didn't really mean that, that, that he was a ghost, just sort of walking around. This is someone who wanted to who wanted to live. This is someone who, not long after his wife's death, he goes to, to Japan in 1886. How many Americans were doing that? This is someone who would later spend over a year in Polynesia, coming into contact with different cultures and different peoples, he was wanting, as an intellectual, to fill himself up. And so it's in this second half of the life, bereft of his wife now, that he, in some respects, tries not to draw attention to his grieving, to his widower status, but in other respects, embraces the notion of being free, of, of being able to, to travel the world and be able to write about what he wants to write about beyond the American context, which is the context that he knew so clearly with Clover. He also begins now to seriously work on his magnificent nine-volume history of the Jefferson and Madison administrations. 
talk a little bit about that book and talk about how well it still stands in the hall of exemplary American histories. This is a project that took Adams about 15 years to complete. Originally, he was going to write a two-volume history of America in the Jefferson and Madison administrations. But being in Europe and going through the archives in Europe, they were so rich, they were so robust. He kept researching and he kept writing nine volumes. This is really much, much more than an American story. This is really a history of the Atlantic world during the age of revolution. It is a history that continues to inform us today. My contact with it was when I was a graduate student, and to this day I've never encountered a more lucid, a more better rendered interpretation of the Aaron Burr affair in America than I find in the pages of Henry Adams's history. Beyond that, his, his analysis, his portraits of what America was in 1800 at the beginning of the Jeffersonian period, and what America was after the War of 1812 at a kind of ceremonial end to the Jeffersonian period, I think in some respects, I think that, that these are unmatched portraits. He was a thoughtful writer, deeply engaged in the source material and working at the top of his game. There is fortunately a Library of America edition, which is tremendous. You can go online, you can read the book as well. It's been scanned, but it is, it is a work of art as much as it is a work of history. It is Henry thinking of himself as a scientific historian, so going to the archives and, and doing the kind of rigorous analysis that maybe most 19th century historians up to that time really hadn't done, but it's also Henry being the artist, seeing history as something more than just a piling up of names and dates, but having something of his own to say, to be an original interpreter of American history and to present history to a readership in a way that would also come off as being epic. The writing, it's not, it's not unduly felicitous, but it flows and it moves. It has a power. And when you, when you marry that writing to the research that he did, it produces a very strong, powerful product. To my mind, this is the greatest work of history written by an American in the 19th century. All right. Now, we're coming up on to the um, end of the 1890s. And Henry, we're moving toward the period where Henry writes what are considered to be his two masterpieces. The, the Education of Henry Adams, which is a, a rather deceptive story of his own life, and, and the uh, Mont Saint-Michel and Chartres, which is his discussion of medieval Catholicism opposed to 19th century technology and, and the uh, both wonderful books in, in, in my view and, and he's also producing in, in these last 20 years of his life an enormous uh, treasury of letters I mean give me an idea David of how many letters there are in the complete letters of, of Henry Adams so there are thousands. Um, yeah, there are. Yeah. Six, six volumes. And besides yeah. the six volumes, the University of Georgia has put out two additional volumes of those letters not put in. 
And there, there are still more volumes sitting, uh, or, or more letters sitting in the Massachusetts Historical Society. So thousands upon thousands upon thousands of letters. And these letters are long. Uh, some of them are serial letters. When he went to Polynesia and he was writing to people, and um, uh, the, uh, the ships, you know, who knows when a ship was going to show up so that you could meet uh, the mail truck. Uh, he would just keep writing an individual for dozens and dozens of pages. And so much of it is, is good, solid analysis about what he's been doing, what he's been seeing in Polynesia. Uh, not, a, uh, not an ounce of fat on it. With those letters, we also have, of course, uh, the late works, the late masterpieces, Mont St. Michel in short, and the education of Henry Adams. These are really companion pieces, and that's exactly how Henry saw it. They're, they look like they're two separate novels, one completed in 1903, the other completed in 1907, but really it's one big study. What's the study about? As Henry said about Mont St. Michel in short, 13th century unity. That is, the medieval world before industrialization. And what is the education of Henry Adams? He called this my study in 20th century multiplicity, referencing the fragmentation of the financial industrial world that he inherited as a 19th century Adams. With Mont Saint-Michel and Chart, it is not a traditional history. It is about the songs. It's about the myths. It's about the feelings of, of medieval France, that medieval world that he really came to, to learn and love later on in his life. With the education of Henry Adams, it is an incomplete memoir, incomplete in that he, he is shielding some very important things about his own background in life, including his marriage, which he never talks about in this, uh, this memoir. What he does in this memoir, though, he uses it as, as a tool to probe American life and culture development in the long 19th century. And what he argues is not necessarily different from what he argues in the nine-volume history of the United States in the Adams, excuse me, in the Jefferson and Madison administrations. What he's arguing is that humanity has created technology that it is quickly losing control over. And so it is, in a sense, a 20th century Jeremiah. It is, in some respects, a kind of a forbidding text, but it can also give us great insight in the 21st century to a process of industrial development, and now post-industrial development, that in many respects we think we control, but in a deeper sense, we know perhaps we don't. It's, it, it's a marvelous uh, book. I mean, I, I've read around in it for years, just the way I've read around in his letters for years, and I always come away deeply impressed by, by his insight in, into what I now see as our own deep confusion about a world that is in which it is the uh, machine that thinks and the uh, man who is reduced to the condition of a machine. Yeah, the, the, the great literary critic Alfred Kazin, late in the 20th century, he compared Henry Adams to Karl Marx. And he said that, that the, these, are, these are two of the major thinkers in the Western world looking at the process of modernity. So we think of Karl Marx and we think, well, communism, etc., etc., etc. Marx was also a very deep social theorist. And we think of Henry Adams, we don't think of communism. But what Kazin tapped into, I think, was very central and very true. 
that, that there are a handful of thinkers out there, Henry Adams is certainly one of them, who was able to, as the process was just beginning to take off, to ascertain the promise and the dangers of industrialization, of cultural anomie, and of technology, and how technology could lead us down false paths. Not always, but the potential was, was definitely there because the combination of technology and human nature. And Henry Adams was, I think, a very shrewd observer of, of human nature. So, I, you know, I, I approached this project. I began to write the biography. And I was thinking of Henry Adams in the American key, obviously belonging to the great Adams family. But the deeper I dug in, the more it became apparent to me that this was really a thinker who, who shared a lot with people like Karl Marx. That is, people who were thinking about where the world was moving and how fast it was getting there and how little control we actually had over the process. Well, the result is uh, you've written a wonderful book. And, and um, I, I learned from it. And, and, and the uh, I learned from Adams. I learned from you. It was a truly a joyful occasion reading your book. And I, I thank you, David S. Brown, for speaking with us today about your new book, The Last American Aristocrat, The Brilliant Life and the Improbable Education of Henry Adams. Thank you. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.